0: yeah.
4: You are listening to Diaries of an F1 Boss on Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host
3: Richard Spanners-Ready and I'm joined by Matt Trumpets. How's it going there Matt? Ah, uh, It's going great. Any excuse to drink whiskey at three o'clock in the afternoon is a good excuse as far as I'm concerned.
4: Mm, that's healthy. And the views of Matt Trumpets are not those of Miss Apex podcast as a whole. So Matt, this is like podcast number five for us in the last 10 days
3: across all platforms. Sick of me yet? Uh, no, but I am getting to the point where I can't distinguish between real life and podcast life. Like you're just on the train and I'm thinking about I'm having imaginary conversations in my head about the next thing we're going to talk about.
4: So uh, a friend of mine was talking to me about uh, about when they are DJing in their room, they pretend they're actually at some sick festival and there's a crowd kicking off and they have this fantasy over and over again. And I, I do a similar thing for Five Side Football. I will I will go into the arena and I will acknowledge the imaginary crowd, you know, and I'll, I'll be like, yeah, yeah, you know, thanks for your acknowledgement, but I need to warm up and focus on this game. The extension of that is I'm worried that this shed and our interactions could just be a similar delusion that I've taken too far. And I don't realize that I'm actually just in an empty, dusty shed.
3: Yeah, I I think the chat room helps bring it back to reality.
4: Yeah, that's a good point. I could never string together coherent chat room conversations like they're having in my imagination. Thank you for joining us. You can join us in the live stream by going to YouTube and searching for Missed Apex Podcast on YouTube and you will be able to chat live underneath our faces. We are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. We're also joined by ex-Lotus F1 CEO and Missed Apex favorite friend of the show, Matthew Carter. Hello, Mr. Carter. Hello, how are you? Oh, very good. Uh, We're in a, we're in a sporting mood, but we're also in a bit of a cheaty mood today. As in discussing cheaty things. Okay. Yeah. Well, you are, you are an ex F1 team boss. So you probably understand more than anyone that there is a general cheating culture in Formula One. In fact, I spoke to an ex team engineer recently who said to me that in the last five years, they can count on one hand the amount of times they turned up to a, a race. Where they knew they had a fully legal car.
5: Yeah, it's kind of uh, it's all part of the game. I think it's uh, the FIA and uh, FOM spend lots of time and effort writing a big, thick set of rules and regulations, and the teams try and pick holes in it. So,
4: what is the relationship like between uh, poacher and gamekeeper? Because you have all these rules, you have ten or twelve teams. I think when you were in F one, and is there is there enough gamekeepers? to actually manage F1, or is it is it more Wild West?
5: So the short answer is no, there's not enough gamekeepers. Um, and it's very much uh, the team's sort of self-police, which is what happened with Renault. So it was Racing Point that uh, brought it to the attention of the uh, of the FIA. Um, so the, the the other teams spend a lot of time and effort on the grid before the start of the race, because that's really the only time you get in and around other cars, looking at other cars and seeing if there's anything that they can spot that looks illegal. And, and if so, then they'll raise a, they'll raise a, um, a claim against it. Um, but we used to, uh, I mean, I can only really speak for Lotus, obviously, but we used to, if we ever came up with anything that we thought was a clever interpretation of the rules, we would send it to Charlie Whiting and ask for his, uh, ask for his, uh, basically his, his direction as to whether or not he believed it would be legal or not legal.
4: Oh, that's interesting. So when you see people like poking around cars at the grid, that is actually for a reason. Because I always think like, oh, well, what can you really tell from the outside? And then you see like team members coming across with flags and banners and stuff. So that is that is genuinely part of the cat and mouse. And people are, are looking <laughs> just before race day. I often wondered whether it was, we've spotted they've done an illegal thing. We also want to do that. So we're either going to clarify it So that we don't waste time developing something illegal, or we're going to copy it if it's deemed legal.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a bit of all of the above, I guess. Um, Yeah, they definitely. You have to remember that when they're on the grid is the only real time, and when first, second, and third drivers finish the race, that's why you quite often see uh, Vettel and Hamilton do it quite a lot. They go and look at the other cars because it's really the only time that you get close to them. Because the rest of the weekend they're in a in a garage away from you, or or speeding down the track.
3: Yeah, so. I I I have a question for you. As team boss, did your employees, because they must have known you did not have this technical background that a lot of that many team principals would have, were they willing to take advantage of that to play right on the edge of the rules, or were they like good about coming to you and saying, I want to try this, but it might be ruled illegal? Like how did that actually work at the team?
5: Um, so, so again, with us at Lotus, it was pretty much uh, the latter. So we would have meetings upon meetings upon meetings where ideas or areas that they'd spotted would be discussed and it would be very open. They would say, you know, this is our interpretation of this rule. Uh, As I, as I just said, more often than not, we would write to Charlie Whiting and say, this is our interpretation of this rule of this subsection. Um, this is how we intend to go around it. Usually with some technical drawings attached to it. And he would generally come back with either a a yay or an A, uh, or a yay but do this. Um, and then we would would progress from there. There were some times that we knew things weren't technically by the rule book and we would On your part. Well, at Lotus not so much. We we wouldn't tend to do it because the guys at Lotus, which is what surprised me a little bit about the Renault thing. The guys were very by the book. Um but I know that other teams do push the boundaries, Red Bull being the the one that Everyone sort of talked about
4: really is that, mm-hmm. that that's well known in the paddock people know yeah. that Red Bull are the guys well, so- I think I,
5: I think it's pretty much well known everywhere I mean the flexible front wings that they I was in a strategy group meeting when Christian Horner admitted to all the rest of the strategy group that they'd had them for uh, they had them on the car for five races or whatever and they they got caught on the last one
4: so the, it's interesting that it's it's part of the culture so is there any bitterness surrounding when teams get away with it? Or is it like accepted that the other teams are doing it? I only ask because after this recent Renault brake bias issue with Racing Ports, uh, Racing Point, Stroll, Pisa, India, reporting them, and then on social media, the social management, the social media teams are still doing their little, you know, Twitter loving. And I'm going, oh, is that is that frosty? Is there any passive aggression, or is it just accepted with the teams? That's part of the game. We're going to catch you out.
5: Uh, I, I. Genuinely, I think it's accepted. I think it's accepted as that is basically why you've got so many people there. And you're always looking for that slight competitive advantage. And you know, we've talked about it in the past with the Lotus with the double pronged front nose that we had in 2014. Well, that was an interpretation of the rule that we thought was going to give us an advantage and nobody else had had thought of. Um, It didn't happen to work on that occasion, but it's things like that. like the brawn double diffuser, it's it's those sort of interpretations that sort of make the sport what it is in my in my belief.
4: Yeah, so I mean, it's me and Matt. We we often like talk about it's the outrage, isn't it, Matt? People are like, oh, they're you know on Twitter, people are like, oh, they're cheating again, and it's like, well, it's not it's not really like that. We've come to accept that as when a team gets caught out doing something if they've been doing it for ages, you're kind of like, yeah, well, well done. That's the game.
5: This specific example is. It kind of just sums exactly what you've just said up because they were found to infringe sporting regulations, and not technical regulations. So it kind of, no, they're swimming close to the edge. And and on that given day, they were deemed to have gone over the edge.
3: Yeah, but supposedly for a long time, I mean, is this an example of, oh, they went and they asked, Charlie said, we want to do this. And Charlie's like, "Uh, that's not going to violate any technical regulations. And they went and did it for a while. And then when the engineer got released, because it was an engineer, wasn't it? An ex-Reno engineer who sort of put them in that direction. That's what and, I heard, yeah. And so um, Racing Point went and they looked at it again and said, well, yeah, it's not a technical regulation, but we've decided it violates the sporting regulation. And it's like literally just kind of changed on them.
5: Well I, th- I think racing point were going after the technical um, violation, and then I think it was the stewards that deemed not technical but sporting. Um, you have to remember that the rules have changed as well since since back in 2014 fifteen when it was on the lotus um, and I think it was Cyril that said that because it had been on for such a long time, they didn't think to ask the question as, as the rules had changed and I think if i if if, if I, what I read was correct what what caught them out was the driving the car unaided um, rule, which really came in. 2015, 2016, I think is when they really started to. So that was, so part of that was coaching the drivers. So I don't know if you remember when that rule came in. So that was, um, and again, I was in the strategy group meeting when they discussed it. And that was, and the specific uh, case that was mentioned was Nico Rosberg, apparently, used to get his race engineer, used to regularly tell him which gear to be in, in which corner. <laughs> Uh, when he could be flat, et etc, et etc, so he was being told what effectively what Lewis was doing in the other car oh wow it 's like having the... so they ah. would say to him they 'd say to him turn turn four is is fifth gear flat or uh, you know you can whatever you know however however they would do it and it was specifically cited in the strategy group that that was one of the things that they felt meant that the driver wasn 't doing his best and then they so then for, there was a few races i don 't know if you remember this where they stopped all. Um, conversation oh, yeah. between the driver and the, and the race engineer.
4: Yeah. It was so at, again, at Lotus, yeah.
5: we came up with all these crazy ideas of what we could and couldn't say. So your water bottle or empty would mean, you know, change to strat seven or, um, whatever, whatever it may be. We, we thought of all these ways of doing it. We even at one point considered putting people around the circuit with old fashioned pit boards. So we'd say at turn seven, there'll be someone in the, you know, on the, on the, on the catch fence with a board that would tell him what to,
4: what to do. Or like like Lewis's dad and all those stories. You could have someone standing at the correct breaking point.
5: so he uh, could, And then yeah. moving. Yeah. yeah.
4: Um, well, yes, we remember that. Uh, certainly, we had a big laugh about it on this podcast, didn't we, Matt, where Rosberg was able to go back to a setting that he had in Baku and was able oh, to course, reset yeah. himself. And Lewis Hamilton was on the radio going, well, do you know what? If you can't tell me, I'm just going to start pressing every single button on my steering wheel. And i are like, <laughs> dude, seriously, we cannot emphasize this enough. Do not do that. <laughs> trumpets were you coming in there sorry pal
3: yeah well you, you know me you know i'm gonna ask uh do you know exactly what Rena was up to with the brakes we've seen so much conjecture but it was on the car in 15 did you do you have a preview can you tell us well, the, how the, the, the system
5: worked to a certain extent the only thing that i know was on the car which i'm assuming is still on the car was there was a way that the brake bias could be changed on um in different settings, but it was the same as, um, like the engine mode and the, um, the battery recovery or the, the energy recharging. There was, there was engine modes that you went into. So that's why they've got all their different strap modes. So some of them give more recovery. Some of them give more clipping. Some of them give more, uh, charge to the, to the electric battery through braking. Um, and I think it's that I think racing point thought that they were changing it on a lap by lap basis somehow. Uh, which I think the stewards said that they weren't. And my If it's what was on the car in 2015, it was a setting that was there from, but it was circuit-specific. So it would say, in this mode at the end of the straight, we start clipping at this point, or however however it was worded. That's the only thing that I know was on the car. And at the time, well, and still now, they still have different engine modes for different racetracks and different portions of the race. So is that not driving... With a driver aid, I mean, it depends where you draw the line, I guess.
4: Oh, do you know what? This is interesting. Me and Matt had one of our very few heated arguments. Matt, I mean, we rarely ever cross a word between shows, do we? Uh, But we were discussing what exactly makes up a driver aid. So for me, uh, Matt, the the example you used was a a clutch being on the paddle and it kind of engaging for you. you. You change gear, the clutch is automatic. So for me, that's not a driver aid. Because you're just making the gear change easier, the skill is where do you change gear? What gear are you in for a corner how at what point do you change gear? So for me, the equivalent of changing the brake bias for you would be like a steering assist. It would be if as you approached the turn, it started edging the steering wheel to the right, where you know brake balance is is key to to how well your car is going to perform, and you see the drivers changing from corner to corner, picking their brake balance to make the car turn in better. That's the same as uh, applying how much brake you want. So if if you if you had a driver aid that put the right amount of brake on for you, that would be the same as something selecting the correct brake bias. I've 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 talked myself into a corner, Matt. But how close? Where do you differentiate? trumpets i should say trumpets because you're both called matthew so the way to tell is with mr carter i'm very formal and i say matthew i use the long name whereas with ah. you i am overly familiar and i say matt even though you've never invited me to or trumpets which is a nickname that i gave you and you have shown actually mostly disdain for over the last five years
3: <laughs> yeah because i go by it everywhere now um it's great no, it? <laughs> deciding what is a driver aid deciding how one drives a car unaided, it's really a catch-all regulation for the stewards and for FIA to ban things they want to ban and to not ban things they don't want to ban. A movable aerodynamic device was the uh, mass, was uh, mass inerters that, that Lotus ran, I think it was Lotus ran, on their cars. It, and it was deemed a movable aerodynamic device only by the stretchiest of use of logic. So when we were arguing, I mean, and I've seen the argument made, let's face it, a steering wheel aids the driver. <laughs> they used to drive with with, with levers. So it, so it's simply a way for the FIA to ban things. And usually what that really means is we don't want more teams spending money on this technology. We don't want you to go down that route. And it used to be an informal process. A lot of times this would this would go by things like the EFTA. It would get seen. They would say, uh, we'll allow it, but you can't pursue it next year. And I think that's changing a bit. And I wanted to ask uh, Mr. Carter, his opinion, because I've seen it uh bandied about, that they are getting rid of sort of this informal inquiry system that used to exist, and they're now starting, and we see it sort of with Ferrari, look, if you think it's illegal, you need to take it to court and protest. Uh, how do you feel about that if you were a team boss, and is it a good idea or a bad idea?
5: Uh I think they've just changed the the sort of the the way you go about it, but it's always been that way it's always as I, as i said at the start it's always been fairly self policing so if you see or you think something is not right, then you go to the f i a and uh and tell them and tell them to investigate it um so i I think from a team boss point of view or from a team point of view i I don't see it making much difference um and it's always going to be the same as we said i think it's, there's always going to be someone trying to push the boundaries of of what is and isn't legal. I mean, I remember at Lotus, we had, there was three specific examples of things that I remember that we uh, pushed through and then didn't put on the car because we we knew that they were blatantly illegal. So one of them was, uh, so informally within the team, we used to call it the tea tray, the the, the piece that's under the front of the, the nose of the yeah. car that, that looks a bit like a tea tray. Um, so there's a there's a rule as to how close to the ground that can be because obviously the closer to the ground it gets the better downforce you get so we had designed the stay that holds that to the underside of the chassis to be made of a material that would break the first time it crossed a curb (laughs) therefore it would drop down onto the ground uh, or it would drop down it had like a like a catch in it so it would drop down so it would be almost touching the ground so it would give us some extra downforce and our theory was if it was ever mentioned we could say oh it was a it was caused by the curb, and we'll make it stronger for the next race. So you got, got away got, with it for you, two or three races. Yeah, you
4: got one get out of jail free card, and then you go, ah, oh, exactly.
5: ah, ah, bad. That's incredible. and like Which is exactly what Red Bull did with their flexible wing. They were like, oh, I didn't realise. And Christian Horner admitted that he'd been on the car for five races. Now, the difference is the guys at Enstone didn't do it or wouldn't do it. They didn't believe it was.
4: That's interesting. They'd-
5: they they thought it was they thought they thought it bordered over it went it crossed the line it went into cheating as opposed to being just a clever uh, a clever thing that we'd come up with. Um, oh,
4: where's that line? Where's that line, Mister Carter?
5: I think one of the other things that we had was we had they developed and again you have to remember we were quite a small team so the big teams would be doing this probably once a week. We came up with an idea that when you turned into a corner, we put a separate um, sort of steering cam on the on the steering column so that when you turned into a corner the uh, the front wing would dip on the inside so it would go slightly lower now that is a movable aerodynamic device but again we were absolutely adamant how is anyone going to spot that you know if you're if you're going at because it was it was best in high speed corners so it would ever so slightly but the the way it worked you had to almost steer back so, if you went around a left hand corner and you were turning left, you had to physically turn the wheel back to the right to bring the, to bring the spoiler back up to get going on the, on the straight. So, neither Roman nor Pasta could improve their lap times in the simulator. But Marcus Sorensen, who was our uh, sim driver at the time, improved by, and Nico Prost improved by something like 1.5 seconds. No. So we proved it with those two and we were like this is incredible and then when Roman and Pastor tried it they just couldn't they just couldn't get used to it they just couldn't go on with it at all so we didn't use that and the final one is one that I think they do now where the inside wheel turns more into a corner so the two wheels don't turn on the same uh, they're not parallel so the inside wheel turns a little bit more than the outside wheel to enable you to go around slow corners a little bit better uh, and I think some teams do that now but I'm sure at the time it was deemed to be illegal it must be an interesting
4: chat because you're, you're a ruthless money guy. You're the CEO. You're, yes, sure. You put on the team colors on the pit wall and for the press conferences. But we all know that you were like Mr. Business from Lego movie behind closed doors. When you have your chief engineer go, Matthew, Mr. Sorry. He says, Mr. Carter, sir, on bended knee, always making sure to have his eyes below yours. When he says, I think that's crossing the line of ethics. Is there a temptation to go, Hmm. That's very interesting. I found your position in F2 and and I'm going to bring in this new uh, general number one who will do that.
5: Well, there's there's obviously a temptation, (laughs) but I think uh, very much the way that I run the team and the way that I run businesses in general is it's kind of a consensus. Um, So we, it wasn't just one person saying that they felt it was crossing the line. You know, we sat down in a design meeting, we went through exactly how it would work. What the potential ramifications would be because potential ramifications of something like that, and even with what Renault were doing, is that they could get thrown out of the whole championship, um, or you start to get um, you start to get a few races deleted, the points, and it can make a big difference. I mean, where Renault are at the moment, as I'm sure we'll get into, in terms of Toro Rosso and Racing Point and McLaren, if they drop down a few places, then there's you know there's potentially. $20, $30 million difference in prize money. So you can't just be throwing away points in races on something that deep down you know is is, is bending rules.
4: So what you're saying is Cyril Abeatable has less moral ethics than you. That's the quote for that I can put on the summary page for this podcast.
5: I would say that he has got a lot of pressure on him at the moment. And I think that at times like that, sometimes maybe you don't make the best of judgments. It's, How about
4: that? Yeah, that's fantastic. That is definitely, that is definitely going on the movie poster. Thank you very much. Uh, Matthew Carter, you're heading, you're heading to Austin this weekend. Yes. Are you? You're going to yes. soak it in. You are Canadia based, aren't you? So do you make it to Canadian. all the, yeah, I mean, it could be pronounced like that. <laughs> I have a, I have a rule with pronunciations on this show, which is never say it the same way twice and you can't always be wrong. So yeah, do you uh, make it to all the North American races or do you pick and choose?
5: Uh, no, I pick and choose. And it depends who I've got an invite from, to be brutally frank. <laughs> so, uh, obviously I always go to Montreal because it's here, it's in my city. Um, uh, I've been to Austin. Uh, I didn't go last year, but I've been the last few years. So yeah, I nearly went to Mexico, but I changed my mind at the last minute because it was back to back and it was just a bit, a oh, it of was trouble. a bit excessive.
4: Are, are all the, uh, are the other incumbents, are they, are they like, Oh, that's an ex, that's an ex team principal as well. Is he, is he hunting around for my job? Or, as I suspect, is he looking to buy Williams? That's, that is the question I would be asking.
5: Uh, no, I don't think either of those. I think they just, um, it's genuinely, every time I go back to the paddock, it's genuinely nice to walk up and down the paddock and see the familiar faces and you forget how much time you spent travelling around the world with those people, even just the mechanics, the press officers, obviously people like Joe and the other journalists. And uh, yeah, it generally takes me a good few hours to get from one end of the paddock to the other
4: uh but when you were oh because you're stopping and and speaking to people you getting <laughs> no uh, just because I walk slowly <laughs> uh, what i'm wondering is cuz when when you were a ceo you were less is it fair to say you were less of a homebody than you are now and i i am i'm slightly interested in this constant speculation that the drivers with kids are suffering in some way or lose some time in pace. And that is often put down to, oh, you've got something to lose. Therefore you drive differently. But as a, as, as more of a family man now, is that, is that fair? To, I don't know. I'm making assumptions here, but you yeah. can see yeah. the effects on drivers, especially if their careers can go on a bit longer. You can see that it's just logistics. You've got stresses and strains. You spend time away from your family. That means that you're putting more pressure on the, the primary child care and family life it's just not that conducive to being around the world all the time and now the calendar is looking at going to 37 races or whatever it is next season
5: no i agree 100% and um to be brutally honest far less worried am i about the drivers or the team bosses it's the mechanics and the uh the logistics guys and the hospitality girls and the um uh, guys and girls and the you know it's it's those people because they generally arrive earlier uh, and leave later than the drivers and the senior management. So I used to get there to a race on a Thursday or a Friday and generally leave Sunday straight after the race. Whereas, you know, the guys who are setting up the garage tend to come in on a Monday or a Tuesday, and they leave on the Monday or the Tuesday the following week. And if it's a back-to-back, like this, these last few races have been, then it's, you know, they, they won't see, there'll probably be three, three and a half, four weeks where they won't see their, their wives and children, or husbands and children.
4: Yeah. No, I, I'm very interested from that, from a, a family point of view. because I mean, from,
5: it, from it, yeah. if it gets much more than, sorry to talk over you, if it no. gets much more than 21 races, then I think they'll start looking into having two different teams of people because the pressure then just becomes crazy. And at that point, it starts to become a monetary thing within the teams. So now they've got their budget caps. They're going to have to start employing more people because I, I physically don't think you can do many more than 21 races. Plus testing, don't forget. So you have got four um, tests that are done during the during the course of the season now. So um, yeah, it's pretty full on.
3: Yeah, but if they're doing more races, presumably Formula One makes more money. Therefore, the teams get a greater share of that money, so they are able to spend more outside but of the budget cap. It, uh, well,
5: yeah, it depends what falls in and outside of the budget cap, doesn't it? So senior yeah. management salaries is, is outside of the budget cap, but I guess if they're, I guess normal salaries would be within the budget cap. So whether or not they're getting more money in from formula 1 they've still only got 175 million they can spend or whatever the figure maybe 500 700 god knows what it's going to be
4: so firstly don't worry about talking over me they're here to listen to you i am the irritation they have to put up with to get the good stuff like yourself and joe Saywood as well if you're listening to this back after the fact joe's episode should be released in the middle of the day on wednesday the 30th of october i am recording this uh, at 8 o'clock that's the UK time at the moment Joe will be joining me live on the live stream for those listening in the live stream at 11 so you can join us for that as well Matthew Carter does not need the publicity however me and Matt are attention whores so if you want to follow our social media you can follow me at Spanners Ready or the show at Miss Apex F1 and to a much less lesser degree and less importantly you can follow Matt at MattPT55 <laughs> that's enough uh that's enough shopping ourselves around isn't it matt oh no no please support us patreon.com forward slash missed apex where you can get additional podcasts where me and matt will talk in a more candid manner you know we try and keep it fairly you know us we don't really express our opinions we keep it very neutral we're very bbc and auto sport like in that regard on the patreon podcasts we might be a little more whiskey fueled and talk about us ourselves and our lives a little bit more as well but it is worse content we don't Edit it. We used to call it Wafflecast. Now we call it the Patron Podcast, which is a lie. It's still the Waffle Cast. You can also get an ad-free feed and you can join us in a private chat forum. A little bit of cheating left. I'll go to it to you, Trumpets. Some discussion about the the illegal Ferrari engine. Do you know what it is that they were supposed to have been doing uh, and why they attracted protests?
3: Uh well, they attracted protests because they were ever so much faster than everybody else, to the point where it was assumed they must be doing something on the edge of or slightly on the other side of the regulations. Now the rumor that was circulating, haha, you'll get that in a second, was that the, there was a high pressure. They were purposely inducing a high pressure leak in the intercooler, which cools the air for the turbocharger. Ferrari is the only team that I think runs a liquid intercooler and that they were releasing oil. Into the engine, which was giving them this power boost, only on the straight. However, the FIA looked at the engine because they were curious themselves, and and have deemed that there is no leak taking place. All right, so you're talking about an
4: oil, an oil leak. So my my pal, my my one Italian friend. See, I'm not a Ferrari hater. I've got an Italian friend. Uh, yeah. So the the Italian press has informed me that most teams suspect that Ferrari are pooling fuel. So they're pooling fuel in that intercooler. I don't understand how these systems work. But much in the same way that Red Bull had the flexible fuel pipe on the other side of the meter, which allowed them to then have more flow, this is the suspicion of the teams, which is that they now have more fuel available for them on the straights, which is why their their advantage isn't through, you know, off-throttle sorry, the advantage isn't everywhere. It's on the straights because off-throttle before the big straights they're pooling fuel, and then they can floor it. Obviously, that has fuel preservation uh, connotation. I don't really understand the words I'm saying. I'm completely parroting what someone else has told me, that they themselves are too uh, scared to, to print under their name.
5: <laughs> but of the FIA have looked into it and have ruled it to be legal, haven't they?
4: Oh, Ferrari International Assistance, am I right? Am I right? You, you believe that?
5: Did I ever tell you the story that Ron Dennis told me about the Ferrari fuel from back in the day? No, we need to hear that now. So, I I don't actually know when it was. It was obviously a long time ago, but there was apparently they were, they suspected Ferrari of running some sort of illegal fuel at one of the races back in the 90s or something like that. And um, Ron had been in the meeting where they'd been discussed, and Bernie had told Ferrari, he told someone to go and get a sample of the Ferrari fuel. They got a sample of the Ferrari fuel, they brought it back to Bernie. Ron Dennis said okay you're going to go and test that sample now and Bernie untook the lid off of the sample and just poured it on the floor what <laughs> no you've never told us that before
4: so <laughs> so it was just a case of this isn't being investigated was this was it because exactly so is it more that they didn't want to cause a fuss rather than we are directly helping one side or another?
5: I think back then, and I apologize profusely because I don't know the era that Ron was talking about, but I think at the time Ferrari weren't necessarily as successful as they maybe could, should, or Formula One management would have wanted them to be. So Bernie was trying to give them uh, every assistance that he could. Uh, it's stuff like. I'm not even remotely suggesting that that's going on these days. He. Narrator voice. Even though Ferrari still have a veto over the rules, yeah, the narrator voice is,
4: which is his just- eyes told a different story.
5: Um, <laughs> but
4: well, I, you know, we we don't know at the end of the day because it is a it is a law unto itself. It's not like a big board, is it? The FIA can deem anything legal, illegal. There's there's just one point of contact. Is is that correct for for rule making?
5: Yeah, it goes to the steward. Well, it always used to go to Charlie Whiting, and then he and the steward would sit and look at whatever, whatever was being discussed. But they can't rewrite rules because something is not covered by the rules, which is why the rules get bigger and bigger and bigger. So, mm-hmm. what I mean is they can rewrite it, but they can't deem it illegal. So, it's not illegal at the point that they rewrite the rules, it becomes illegal afterwards, and they have to give the teams a certain amount of time to adjust to the new rules. Uh,
3: which brings us to technical directives, which are informal clarifications of the rules and the teams would ask a question and then they would clarify it and then from that point forward, it would be um, it would be like, oh, we have to do that. And the reason I bring it up is because I'm hoping you know someone who could get them to publish these things so that people like Summers and myself could actually read them because a lot of Formula 1 is actually run according to technical directives more so a lot of times than just the regulations, right? Yeah, exactly. I
5: do know people that have them. I'm not sure. There's kind of an unwritten rule that they don't get shared around. And I, I don't genuinely know why that is. Do journalists, do other journalists have them?
3: Uh, they get leaked from time to time, but I Parts feel Parts like, of them, don't they? Yeah, but it feels like they should just, like, you know, they put the regulations up, they put the stewards decisions up. It seems like at a certain point, you ought to be able to go someplace and just read what's being said, unless there's intellectual property rights involved, which- yeah. You
5: know, well it I mean, probably is to be to be fair. But it's also it's just another example of the weird way that Formula One is governed. I mean it's you know I was listening to someone talking the other day where they were saying, you know, it's not like soccer teams get yeah. to have a say in the rules. It's uh, it's it's a weird way that we govern the sport. Uh,
4: yeah, b- that's true. And in football there's a there's a whole grassroots level, so the same rules that you're applying are up the chain, in theory, get a, a applied down the train chain. That's why VAR was held off for for decades. Really, there was you could have used technological aids. Hockey, you know, the the hockey that they do on the ice with the sticks, it's sort of like grass hockey, but on ice. Uh, they had goal line technology for for years and years, but in football, the argument was, well, you couldn't do it at grassroots, so we're not going to do it up at the top. But in Formula One, it is just a world into itself. It's not linked in or determined by other stuff. And in a way, there is a WWE element where they can do things for the show. Now, to be absolutely clear, I was joking earlier when I said Ferrari International Assistance. I, I do not think there is a steward bias towards uh, – For I think I'll clarify this because um, I, I fell down on this a few weeks ago. People thought I was implying that the stewards were making decisions to help Ferrari. I I didn't. I felt the stewards were under pressure for certain decisions and that at certain times and venues they were perhaps letting circumstances judge their decisions instead of just focusing on what happened.
1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
4: Now then, what I would like to do is ask a dumb, dumb question. Because I, you guys have been talking about uh, sporting regulations, technical violations. Is this a really stupid question? Just to quickly ask, what is the difference between a Sporting violation when it comes to a, an engineering part or or a technical violation.
3: Not do you want to grab that? Um, sure. Why not? Sorry, I'm sitting here trying to copy a comment and it's, it's just failing it. on me. Uh, once My again, browser is not cooperating.
4: Once again, the chat room ruins the show. Thank you very much for joining us, chat room. By the way, just so you know, if you if you do want to join the live stream, you can rely on me posting when it's going to happen. Or there's a, a little bell icon. You click that. And basically you'll get an alert on your phone that says, Miss Apex podcast is live. And then you can click. And when you click, you'll see our faces and you're, you're right there in the chat room. We encourage you to do that, but please also download the ad filled podcast, please. Thank you, Matt.
3: Right. So sporting regulations are like the rules. You, and since you're using the football analogy, I'll roll with that. And not even the North American football, the overseas actually kick it with your foot. Yeah.
4: Football. The one you use your foot for. Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah. Like, okay, So you can't run up to someone uh from the back and just knock them over. That's a violation of the sporting regulation. On the other hand, you can't have a cleat made out of a certain material or beyond a certain length. That's a technical regulation. The ball has to be this size. The ball has to be this pressure. The- Material of the ball has to be this. The goal has to be so wide. Those are the technical regulations.
4: So what if I have a Mad Max style spinning blade on my football boot that takes out people's ankles, even though that's technical, that would fall under sporting because I'm using it to affect, I don't know.
3: Yeah, sometimes things can be violations of both. For example, you can have a front wing that deflects automatically because you've installed fake wing adjusters that with springs and it deflects at speed. And that would not only be a movable aerodynamic device, uh, but it would also uh, violate the technical regulations because you're not allowed to build things that way. For example, I'm not saying a particular team did this. Oh, wait. Yeah, actually, a particular team did. Never mind. Which one? I'm not smart enough to pick up on things like that.
4: Say the a color, Red Bull. Red Bull. Okay, cool.
3: Red Bull. Yeah, yeah, they did it, um, and and they were they they lost their points in the last race of the year, but they had been running it for a while. I think I think there was a disgruntled employee who tipped off the FIA, which is, if I'm not wrong, Mister Carter, how most of these things go, right?
5: A lot of them, yeah. yeah as I say, it's it's very much self policing by the other teams, by people that switch from one team to another. All the teams employ photographers, as as I'm sure you're aware, to take pictures of the other cars when they're on track. No. Um, so all the teams hire photographers at every race to take high resolution pictures of the cars on the track and they zoom in and they spend hours, days after the race is just looking at um, snapshots of all the other cars to see if there's anything on there that either is yes. illegal or is something that they haven't thought about or something they should think about. Or-
4: so when or the crane lifts a car up, that is an absolute disaster for the teams?
5: Uh, yeah, yeah, that's why quite often when they when they come back into the pit lane, you see them throw a blanket over or a, or yeah.
4: a tarpaulin or something. Well, the tarpaulin. I was just going to say, with your driver lineup, that must have been like a constant
5: worry. I wanted to put a sponsor on the bottom of Pastor's <laughs> car.
3: <laughs> oh man! So I'm I'm guessing um, I'm guessing Mercedes uh, was it Mercedes? Uh, the the wrecked car that Martin Brundle looked at. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Not happy about that. Well, of course not.
5: And that's why. That's what we what we were talking about at the very, very start of the show is, is on the grid, when you do see M- team members standing around the rear wing of a car, shoulder to shoulder, so that, so that other teams can't see and look at it, because um, there might be something on there that they think is incredible, and they don't want other teams to copy or to potentially to flag up to the officials.
4: Okay. Matthew, you were in F1 2014, mm-hmm. and you had a Mercedes engine? Nope. Yep. No. But a Renault engine in 2014, Mercedes in 2015. Okay. So someone who I will tell you after the show who messaged me uh, and I will, but I will ask the question anonymously. In 2014, Mercedes ran an oil tank that was twice the size of anyone else and they were ad- injecting oil into the fuel for a boost. Were you aware of that when you were making your engine deal and when you took them on for 2015? No. Oh, okay. Well, there we go. Not as interesting as I thought. Sorry, trumpets. Hey, I, they can't all be hits. I'm trying my best here. No.
5: The, the, the only thing with that, I would say in 2014, um, Mercedes, because they got the jump on that new hybrid engine, they managed to make a much better engine, as we know, than everyone else. But the biggest issue that we had at Renault, and I think Ferrari as well, was cooling. Um, so to try and get the body to, so what they call the Coke bottle, a bit at the back behind the engine where it comes in, it comes in narrow. It was very difficult for anyone other than Mercedes to do that. So I don't think any of the other engine manufacturers would have had any space to put a separate oil tank because it was all so tightly packed under there.
3: Yeah, no, I just wanted to clarify. The chat room pointed out there were actually two incidents. Uh, It was Alvin's car that was wrecked that Brundle looked at. But then after Valtteri wrecked his car, they actually left the in-car camera on when they wheeled it back into the garage and it was being fixed by Mercedes mechanics and uh Sadly, that disappeared very rapidly from the Formula One TV app and is not to be found now.
4: Right. Let's move on from cheating. It hasn't been very wholesome at all, this topic, has it? But I think we do have to accept that it's an engineering sport and engineers deep down at their core are evil people who would be more more likely to cheat. And F1 does employ a lot of those people. Uh, Can we talk a bit of business? Because you're a... You're a you're a businessy minded person, Mister Carter. Do you have any insight into what's going on at Renault? It feels like the wheels are coming off the wagon, but that's from the outside. They're putting a very uh, positive uh, Bo- Borisian spin on things. Borisian, yeah, that that works. Um, they're saying everything's positive. They're making all the right noises, but they are being beaten by their customer. That they've lost the 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 thinking in in the twitter sphere is that well what's the incentive for them to carry on they've had these dramas they've lost two CEOs uh recently and there were two CEOs that were very supportive of F1 and now they've come out with statements like we the F1 involvement is on the table is the quote i heard from Renault
5: executives is it as doom and gloom as it might appear i don't think so i think they um and I'm sure Joe's mentioned this on your show before, but they, they did a backloaded deal when they came back into the sport. So they're actually one of the only teams that have got a contract that goes past 2020. Um, the rest of them are up for renegotiation. Um, so they signed that. I believe they signed, a, they signed a deal to stay in the sport until 2025. Now the ramifications of that and the penalties, if they exit, I have no idea. And I guess if... Worst case scenario, and I'm not saying this would happen if they did sell the team, I guess there would have to be some sort of a liability taken for that, that element of, of potential penalty if you pulled out of the sport. Um, the backloaded deal meant that they got some, they got extra prize money towards the back end as well. So they were getting prize money for being a historic, uh, constructor, even though they'd been out of the sport for a while. So they, they continued their historic, uh, status through supplying engines through the whole period. Um, so I don't think there's any chance that they're going to run away from the sport. Um, well, if they do, there'll be certainly big financial ramifications if they do. Um, I just think they've they've kind of come off the rails a little bit, um, and it was maybe it was always going to happen. I mean they they thought they were going to be challenging for um, championships by this stage in their in their business plan when they bought Lotus. They were moving from you know, sixth to fourth to fifth to third to second to challenge you championships. And they're obviously a long way off that. Um, and yeah, it's just they've they've thrown a lot of money at their drivers now. They've thrown a lot of money at new employees. They've thrown a lot of money at uh, they threw a lot of money at things that I didn't necessarily think needed throwing money at. Um, Such as just a lot of the alterations that they did at Enst. I've told you stories before I think I mean they one of the first things on their business plan was they wanted to go from I think when I left, there was maybe circa 500 employees, I think high mm. 400s. And one of their targets was to get to 750 employees. Um, so I actually questioned Cyril about it and said, In what departments and where do you want to do it? And he said, I don't care. We just need 750 employees. And I said, Why? And he said, Because Mercedes have got that. So it was just, uh, we need people. And I, 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 that just didn't make any sense to me. I mean, if he'd come back to me and he'd said, Well, we've analyzed it, we decided that we need 20 more engineers or we need, Five new guys in the wind tunnel, or or whatever. But there was no, there was no plan. It was just we need numbers. Um, so there's was a lot of that. They developed. A, a, they've, they've turned Enstone, Enstone into more of a um, a showpiece for Renault, which I get because they've got a market. They've got to use it as a marketing tool. Whereas when it was Lotus, it was very much a functional. It was still a beautiful building and an immaculate facility, but it was very much a functional uh, racing team operation. And now it's turned into more of a marketing tool.
4: It's like a, almost like a fake it till you make it. And I suppose Daniel Ricciardo is a, is a big part of that. I, I'm assuming that that is a big money transfer and he's on a huge salary. I've never actually looked into it, but is is he, is he supposedly on a, a a big money deal there? And like, you, you know, you could get drivers of Daniel Ricciardo's pace, sorry, Australia for less, probably. But because he's very marketable, he's more appealing.
5: Yep. Um, yeah, he's he's one of the top drivers. That's not, I mean, I, I, I find it interesting that when, when someone of his, clearly when he was at Red Bull, he was considered to be one of the top drivers, pulling a few race wins out for Red Bull when they really shouldn't have done. Stellar drives around Monaco, which is always a sign of a good driver, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I just find it's interesting when they go to a midfield team that they suddenly don't look as dominant. Um, I think when he was announced that he was moving there, people would have thought that he would completely obliterate Hulkenberg. Um, and he very much hasn't done. Um, I know he's got more points than him, but you know, it's, it's, it's been fairly nip and tuck all the way through the season. And, uh, if, uh, if Hulkenberg didn't get caveated, then, uh, he'd probably have a few more points as well. But no, just, just lots of things. Like, I mean, obviously him trying to overtake Perez in his last race and uh, the brakes not performing as well as they were, they, they did on a Red Bull. So, he was definitely, or he is definitely considered to be one of the top drivers. But um, it would be interesting. I always think if someone like a, a Verstappen or a Hamilton or someone like that ended up in a Force India or in a McLaren or in a Renault, what they could do with the with the machinery. Uh, but in answer to your question, yes, he's on big money. He moved. Yeah. He moved for big money. That's it was one, definitely a marketing thing.
4: Uh, before you get in, trumpets. Uh, Mark says Spanners is no fa- fan of Danner's. That's, that's not true. I think he brings a fantastic energy and vibe. And he did beat Sebastian Vettel. Sebastian Vettel's ultimate performance for me is, is under question, uh, on the big picture, but he got beaten consistently by Max Verstappen on pace and in races. Daniel Ricciardo. What did I say?
5: Max Verstappen.
4: Uh, yeah. So Daniel Ricciardo got beaten by Max Verstappen. Did I not say that? Yeah, oh, but you
5: were talking about Vettel. You were talking about Vettel. Yeah, yeah. So, so Vettel got about,
4: beaten by. Yeah, so I'm talking about Ricciardo against other drivers. So I'm saying yes. Ah, okay. He beat he beat Vettel, um, but up against Max Verstappen, who we know has raw pace. The only the only place Ricciardo was beating him was on race craft uh, and having a bit more of a racing brain, probably a little bit better, smoother, cleaner on overtakes. But he was he was being beaten by by him on on qualifying pace and on race pace. So no, it's, it's not that I'm not a fan of him at all. It's just that I, I wonder whether, where he is in the ultimate echelon of top, top drivers. I don't think he's, he's quite there.
5: But it's, it's obviously an age-old conversation, an age-old question, and, and we'll never get to the bottom of it, but it is how you do grade those drivers. Because when Vettel and Ricciardo were up against each other, that was 2014. That was the first year of the hybrid engines. And the Renault engine in that Red Bull was terrible. And, uh, I think Vettel had more, they had a lot of failures and breakdowns, but I think Vettel had more and he had more good penalties. Um, and then when you look at Verstappen against Ricciardo, that was one of the reasons that Ricciardo left was because he felt that the team were backing Verstappen. They gave Verstappen a big big contract and they were giving Verstappen the upgrades. They were giving Verstappen the best parts, et et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which happens in all teams. But when you're someone of Ricciardo's standard, and you're not allowed to talk about it because the team don't let you talk about it, and yet you know that your car is not the same as the car that's in the other side of the garage, that's what Julian Palmer had when he was at Renault, and it used to, it drove him mad. He he spent a whole year knowing that Holkenberg had had a better car than him with newer parts on it, and uh, he wasn't allowed to say anything else.
4: I mean, you have to say things like Mark Webber did, like "not bad for a number two driver" to to let the world know. Now there is a reason I, I'm not just. Uh, trying to assess Daniel Ricciardo. I, I know there's a lot of factors. I, I think it's inconclusive would be my, my view on Daniel Ricciardo. Where he is in the ultimate history of Formula One is inconclusive. He may yet get another shot at ultimate glory. I'm not sure it's going to happen for him. I think he's, he's taken the, the, what he thought would be a sideways move, but isn't, it's a move down and it's, it's hard to go back up the other way. But the reason I'm bringing up Daniel Ricciardo is because the last time we spoke to you, we spoke about Esteban Ocon. And we've had a few comments already that have said, Are you going to ask him about his wrong thing you said about Ocon? Now, had I had uh, a better day today, I would have cut the tape out. But to remind you of what you said, because a lot of the thing that got leapt on was the comments about Ocon to Mercedes. Mercedes. Obviously, yeah, obviously Bottas got renewed for 2020. What you said was, uh, I, I am confident that Ocon has an F1 contract for 2020. Like you were a hundred percent on that. And then you speculated that it may well be, in your opinion, in your, if you were taking a educated, an educated guess, you said, in your opinion, it looked like Mercedes was the best bet to do that. So obviously how it panned out is that Bottas has the 2020 drive, but you were correct. Ocon does have a drive for, for 2020 with Renault, uh, where, whereas, but this year, it was it was decided between Toto and Cyril that he was going to have the 2019 contract. And then there was some issue that perhaps Cyril had gone back on that. But it looks like we've got the go-ahead for 2020. Well, we know we have, sorry.
5: I lost you. You yeah, froze no. halfway through oh, that. I?
4: Oh, I just assumed that I was saying something terribly insightful. But essentially, uh, you were correct about Ocon. And now so, yeah. he's going to be up against Ricciardo.
5: Yes. So my so what I was told was that he definitely had a drive. I was told by his uh, by his management that he had a drive, and that there was because I was expressing concerns that he wasn't going to have a drive. And I said, no, he's definitely got a drive. It it was my uh, slightly educated, again with a little bit of back substance to it, that it was going to be at Mercedes. Um, I don't think I was obviously I was wrong, but I don't think I was a million miles away from it. Was obviously a decision that Toto. A long time after I had said that, that it came out that Toto was considering the two of them and that he was making a decision between the two. My understanding subsequent to that is that Lewis had more of a say over who his partner was going to be than he maybe should have done. Ooh, um, okay. From a team point of view, I'm not convinced. I'm still not convinced and I'm happy to be shouted down by the chat room or whatever, but I'm, I'm still not convinced that it's the best move for Mercedes. I think they needed to get someone like Esteban in there to 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 push Lewis, and I think they asked Lewis his opinion. They wanted to keep him happy, and he obviously would prefer to have a uh, slightly more subversive, uh, submissive driver in the in the second seat that he could uh, that he could guarantee if Mercedes has got a good car that he's going to get all the all the tools to to make it work.
3: All right, so I'm I'm going to first of all agree with you a thousand percent because when we discussed this, I was very much on the Ocon going to Mercedes bandwagon because if you look, uh, just to me, if you look at how Ferrari is doing, you need to score maximum points always. And uh, one place we've seen Bottas unable to keep up is in dealing with the tires and over long stints and in, and in certain situations. I think Ocone versus Perez shows that he's better with the tires, with these Pirelli tires, and would bring more points ultimately to the team. But To put yourself in that situation with Lewis, when you have someone who's a championship winning driver or with your top driver and you want to bring in someone in, bring someone in who you know will push them and possibly beat them, like how do you deal with that? Did you just say, well, I'm sorry, we need maximum points for the team, you're going to have to be comfortable because if your driver's not comfortable in the car or in the team, then they won't perform optimally either. So where is that dividing line? How do you as a boss make that choice that I should indulge my driver versus I need to tell them to grow up and get over their funky bad selves?
5: I think there's, there's a couple of ways to look at it. There's definitely a, a short term and a long term uh, um, position uh, in what is best for the team. Um, in the short term, happy Lewis Hamilton, submissive second driver is probably the best for the team. Long term, they need to think about replacing Lewis Hamilton at some point. And they can't keep letting drivers slip through the net or go to other teams. Now, one interesting turn of events um is that when I thought there was no way that Esteban would go to Renault, it was because I was under the impression that Renault – well, Renault did say initially that they would only take him if they could have him on a permanent deal, if, if he was no longer affiliated to Mercedes. Yeah. My understanding is that he is still affiliated to Mercedes. Oh. And he's effectively on a loan. Oh, that that has that been reported? What I don't I don't think that has been. I think reported. it's a two year. I think it's a two year, um, and if at the end of the two years they want him back, they can take him back. And I think that it was Renault stroke Cyril that backed down on that portion, which allowed Toto to make his decision. You have to remember who Valtteri Bottas' manager was for the majority of his career as well was Toto Wolff. Um, so there's lots of, there's lots of sort of underlying little areas in there, but the second part of the answer to, to what Matt said is that, so you've got that short-term long-term and you've got to also take into account Mercedes dominance. So when Mercedes are super dominant, so really you have to say, even this year to an extent when they're super dominant, you don't necessarily need two quick drivers. You need one quick driver and a wingman as he famously was called that time, um, I don't know how it's going to pan out. And I think Toto is a little bit nervous about that as well. And that's why he was umming and ahming about the decision, because who knows next year, if Ferrari continue with the, the way that they're going, then you really do need two drivers to score points if you're going to challenge for a seventh Constructors title. Um, and that's where I feel that this could be a decision that comes back to bite them.
4: So uh, Brendan Rogers has uh, stated as fact very confidently that says he can't be recalled midway through that loan period.
5: Yeah, no, midway through he can't, but it is a loan period. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So well, initially, Renault said they would never take him on loan. They would only take him if he was contractually cut from Mercedes. And that changed. That was, the, that was the part that changed during that discussion as to whether it was going to be Bottas or Oak. I thought that was public, but if it's not, it now is, I guess.
4: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that isn't. Uh, but thank you very much. Uh, we, we appreciate that. We appreciate your time as well. Uh, Matthew Carter, ex CEO of Lotus F1 team. This is the part of the show where I have to fulfill my contractual obligation to Matt Trumpets. That is his real name. that We have to talk about tires for at least seven minutes of every show. You did have, you basically wrote tire test in the show notes, which means nothing to me. So I'm just going to flick the video thing to you and mute.
3: And apparently fall asleep. But fine. Be that way. Uh, no, uh. What we've learned about the 2020 tires is they don't fit the 2019 cars. And specifically, they've had to cut out portions of the floor, which is very aerodynamically sensitive in order to get the tires to run because of a different shoulder construction, which nobody but me and perhaps Summers care about. But what's interesting about this is they are actually testing the tires. All of the teams have a set of C4 2020 Pirelli tires they can run this Friday in practice. But if they run them, They're going to have to saw out a piece of the floor. Now, I'm assuming if you're Mercedes, you've brought an extra floor that is the correct size and you will simply just change it out for whichever driver gets to test the tire. But if you're Racing Point or Haas, this is not something you can do. You're going to have to damage your floor and either rig uh, some way to add back as best you can or you're going to have to skip testing the tires. What's the best answer uh, for you? What What's the best thing for a midfield team to do there? Test the tires and risk the loss at Coda or wait until Abu Dhabi when you can run them properly? So we we as a midfield team
5: that didn't necessarily have a lot of cash, as, as was often reported, we had uh, at least five floors at every race because the floor is one of the things that breaks quite easily. Um, and they're quite easy to swap in and out of the car. And the car gets, the car gets very, very, as you, I'm sure you know, between Friday and Saturday, they pretty much strip the car completely down just to recheck and to make sure that everything is. So on, as soon as they finish practice on a Friday, they generally strip the car completely back to how it was when it arrived at the circuit. Then they rebuild it and they check all the parts. So even as us voters, and I appreciate we were maybe a bigger team that had fallen into the midfield. Um, so we maybe had a little bit more uh, wherewithal and knowledge than, Someone like a a, a manor, um but we certainly would take more floors, and it was a fairly easy job, so I know it's probably not the most exciting answer, but I would assume that they've probably got a floor that has been adjusted back in the factory to accommodate the uh, the tires for next year, that they'll they'll slip that onto one of the cars and it will get tested on that car.
4: Are you happy trumpets Oh my really that i I was paying attention, so good, well done. was that it? Is that the end of tires is that is it well, finished? <laughs>
3: tires are never at an end you know this but but that was my specific question because i thought it could be a budget problem for some of the teams that yeah no they they,
5: they bring a lot of floors aren't necessarily a they're a big piece of the car but they're not necessarily a very expensive piece of the car so the floor is is only slightly more expensive than a nose and you see how many noses they bring when they line them up outside the front of the garage so even the smaller teams bring um, four or five noses um to every race so um yeah, I don't think, I mean, it, it's a choice as to whether or not you want to test the tyres and, and some of the teams might not do it, but um, they would be probably going into next season with a bit of a deficit if they don't do it.
4: Good, that definitely feels like seven minutes. Uh, last question for you, Mr Carter. If you if you don't mind, is just about managerial approaches. Everyone's favourite team principal at the moment is Gunter Steiner with his straight up and down approach. But at the moment, he's being asked things like, What, what positives are there for this season? And his answer is there's only three races left. When you're in a position where there's not much to fight for, or you know, you're on a bit of a downhill path or you're waiting for next year, you know, surely, surely you've got to have a bit more positivity. And when, when teams say, uh, we're writing off this season and we're looking forward to next season, is that, is that hard? Have you had to do that? Have you had to go, right, we're not developing anymore? we're looking at next season or just out of cash. How how do you keep people motivated to keep trying?
5: Yeah, there's there's a there's a definite cutoff. off so there's there's a there's a definite point when you start working on next year's car. And then there's kind of a gradual um sort of like a graph as to how many people fall off of the current car and how many people start working on a new car. So even at the start of the season you'll probably have an initial working group of maybe ten people that are working on the car for the following season. And then that 10 people grows and gradually people move from 2019 to 2020 as the season progresses. And depending on where you are in the championship and where what you're fighting for, then that is dependent on how many people move from one car to the other. Um, Gunter is that kind of personality, I guess. But certainly me and the way that I approached running the team, I think you always tried to be fairly upbeat. You've always got sponsors at the races. You've always got to uh, to put on a brave face, and generally, I think in all the seasons that I was running the team, we were fairly down to the wire with either Force India or Toro Rosso or one of those teams for uh, for points. And and as I said earlier, you know, a difference between fifth and fourth in the constructors can be ten million dollars. So there was always that to to galvanise the team and to and to try and keep people keep people motivated, but energy is the energy within the team definitely drops towards the end of the season and you, and you see that with the mechanics and the, and the drivers and, and everyone.
4: Well, they've got a rich energy, haven't they? So they're okay. Would you would you have taken Rich Energy as a
5: as a sponsor? I sponsorship it's it's a, I, I appreciate the joviality with which the question is is proposed, but sponsorship in Formula 1 is so difficult. I think and it's getting more and more difficult. I think honestly, they most teams would snatch any sponsorship deal, even if it looks to be shaky, and I know that Joe Sayward said many times that he thought there was bank guarantees in place and that they were definitely going to get their money, and therefore they're taking it. So you you can't not talk to people within if they're offering a title of sponsorship of a, I mean, what what is Rocket that's on the Williams car? I mean, you know, I, I have I know it's a mobile phone company, or but but in reality, it's what are they marketing globally around the world? So. You can't really turn around and say no to anyone. I think you have to talk to everyone that's around. And if you've got guarantees and they've got some money, then so be it.
4: Yeah. And the Missed Apex podcast is is sponsored by Lamp Nasal Waxing this week. And we've taken that money and now my nostrils are smooth and clean like a baby's bum.
3: So uh, you're basically saying something like rich energy would be perfect for the bottom of Pastor's car then. That-
4: There we go. Yeah, Honestly, that is my favourite line of this whole podcast. Uh, Matthew Carter, ex-F1 CEO of Lotus. I wanted to sponsor the underside of Pastor Maldonado's car. I will be laughing about that all
5: week. It was, do you know what happened with that as well? Actually, I made that comment as a little bit of a joke and it was, I think the race after was, was it Bahrain where he hit Gutierrez coming out of the pits? And he flipped right up in the air and the picture that was on the front of Autosport, what well, you could see the bottom of the car. And I was sat around the table and I said, you see, we could have sold, we could have sold that space to somebody for, for good money. Trumpets.
3: Yeah. Well, speaking of sponsorship, uh, Tanner Wilson says tires are eternal, just like Gunther. And he paid 10 whole dollars for that. So thank you. I guess, I guess we have, I guess we understand your point of view then.
4: <laughs> uh, guys, uh, speaking of the chat room and the fantastic comments, you cannot buy comment of the week you will, will probably get a mention if you compliment matt a shocking trend that i've tried my best to stamp out thank you very much to the guys who've kept his company uh stuart neal has asked can we keep this going until joe is on later uh, unfortunately I, I do need to edit it um, but dd tv suggests a non-stop 24 hour f1 podcast i think i think we've we've talked about similar things like maybe for a charity or some kind of an event end of season we'll just have a 24-hour live stream where we get people on we do shifts we do rotors you know like a guard stag rotation something like that matt and and that would be a circumstance in which i wouldn't stop you talking about tires i'm like yeah keep it going that is two hours burned and we're only on the front left rear in the first phase of the stint
3: since you bring up tires The weather in Austin is actually supposed to be cold. And we did see a lot of graining in Mexico during the cold days. So even though it's normally a one stop, it might actually be a two stop. And that's race stuff. So thank you very much.
4: Narrator voice. It was still a one stop because that's just what we always have all the time. This is the point of the show where we reward the fantastic comments in our chat room with this award. Comment off the week. Okay, Matt, give us the four people that complimented you, the three real contenders, and then we'll invite Mr. Carter to pick a winner.
3: All right. Well, actually, you'll be happy to know that Jan Kvitberg. Kvitberg? I am not sure, and I will be corrected inevitably no matter what I say, back to work. I am at work, but needed to see the handsome faces of Spanners and Matt. My boss should try to tell me not to watch this.
4: Okay, that's that's in contention because I also got a correct compliment about my beautiful, beautiful face.
3: And then we jump to Mark Greenhow. I may be biased, but the balance of this podcast never fails to break my reluctance to pay a small monthly fee to help.
4: I have been accused in the past. Actually, that a lot of YouTube comments have been coming in about my bias. I've been accused of being overly neutral. They're like, ah, oh, just just pick a side. For goodness' sake, Spanners, we're we're sick of you just giving all us all balance all the time. So I'm I'm going to try and address that in future episodes.
3: Yeah, um, I, I I like the fact that not only is it a plea for sponsorship, but also multi puns.
4: Good. Is, uh, did he did he win, or is that how many how many have we had? We have
3: two more to go, Dan referencing the uh, Grosjean Maldonado inability to make the car go faster with the cheaty part, says, those sad drivers couldn't even cheat right, lol.
4: And that is incredible. Your two race drivers couldn't facilitate your cheating, so you had to stop cheating to make up for the fact that your test drivers... Nico Prost, he gets a bit of short shrift in Formula E. Did you rate
5: him, Mr. Carter? He was a very good simulator driver. Oh, Okay. To be okay. fair, that's that was that, that was that was a bit harsh. He never drove the race car because okay. he wasn't the third driver, so he he couldn't drive a he couldn't drive the race car. But he was he was very good in the simulator. Apparently his feedback and um his his work ethic and whatever in the in the simulator was very good. Um so yeah, he was he was yeah,
3: he was he was very capable. Good. Uh, back to comment of the week, the matter in hand. And the last one is Brendan Rogers with Danny Ricciardo is Renault's trophy wife yes nice and in fact didn't someone put in there it, it was one
4: million dollars for driving ability and 24 million dollars for the smile which kind of talks to the marketing element of signing a driver like that uh matt remind mr carter of the the three contenders and he can pick a winner
3: uh, uh mark Greenhow, i may be biased but the balance of the podcast never fails to break my reluctance to pay a small monthly fee to help dan with those sad drivers couldn't even cheat right and finally, Brendan Rogers with Danny Ricciardo is Reno's trophy wife. I think the first one with all the puns in it is the <laughs> one that was. was uh,
4: one. Look at that. Nick Nick Alexander will be happy, our resident Canadian, I think, or German. He's happy. He's always happy with a fantastic <laughs> comment. So uh who was the winner
3: of that, Matt? It was Mark, no? Mark Greenhow. Ah. You have won Comment of the
2: Week. Comment of the Week.
4: Thank you very much to Mark and everybody in the live chat room. You will see us again very shortly at 11 p.m. Or if you're listening to this podcast after the fact, you probably have two shows lined up. The next one with Mr. Joe Sayward joining us live from North America. If you want to support us, you can at patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex. And you can follow us on Twitter at Missed Apex F1, me at Spanners Ready and Matt at Matt PT 55 wherever you see us next be brave because wounds heal chicks dig scars but glory lasts forever this was Diaries of an F1 Boss on Missed Apex Podcast we were on schedule until the tyres and then the tyre section was 25 minutes I timed it well no I didn't time it I passed out it's it was the same not- thing I think so. That's
5: okay. We've never done one less than an
4: hour. There were cobwebs after the end of that section that were not present at the beginning of you talking about tyres. It was like that, that scene in the time traveler where he's like, he goes in his machine and that landscapes are changing and everything. And then by the time you'd finished talking about tyres, there was a whole underground race of really aggressive humans that was hunting down the cliff dwelling humans that were the heroes with uh, Samantha Mumba. That's exactly how it was.